In anticipation of Gary Marshall's Terminator Genesis, in honor of Black Hat, what was the last time you saw a movie by a director you disliked and were yet pleasantly surprised by it? I'm Joanna Robinson, and I'm picking Pain and Gain because I did not know Michael Bay had that in him. Hey, it's me, Dave the Seven, Doug Lyman's Edge of Tomorrow, because Doug Lyman was just the born guy. Sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I'm going to go with Enemy by Denis Villeneuve, because God fuck Prisoners, the movie that haunts me after reviewing it and giving it like a 5 out of 10. Jesus Christ, IGN commenters, fuck you. Enemy is great, though. <laughs> uh... I'm David Ehrlich. I was the prop for this question because I've never, I haven't been interested in Michael Mann in a while, and I enjoyed Black Hat a great deal. Uh, and I'm going to go with, at least in recent memory, uh, Paul W.S. Anderson. And I believe it was Resident Evil Retribution was the one that turned me around. Yes, it is the, an art fourth, film you were the fifth, the fifth one. The, whatever the most recent one was. Uh, yeah, that... that perk me up to the uh, the seductive powers of Paul W.S. Anderson. Even if I'm not on board, the he is a revolutionary auteur train. Uh, I thought that was some pretty wonderful big-budget filmmaking. She just really dances around lasers for an hour and a half. It's pretty great. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you, it's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode number 54 for Tuesday, January 13th, the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown, 2015. David, I hear we have a review on iTunes where we want people to leave us reviews so we read them on the show. We actually have three different reviews, uh, and it's a real shame that Katie isn't here to hear them. Um, and you'll notice why in a second. The first is by Murphy, in parentheses, Robocop. Uh, your cover is blown, Murphy. <laughs> With the exception of Abortion King is the title of the five-star review. It says, I love you guys. Been listening since the beginning of Opkino. Katie, you have a super sexy voice. Mm-hmm. Patches and Dave, you two are great. And Ehrlich, you drive me up the goddamn walls sometimes. But at the end of the day, you might be my favorite. Except for Katie. Thank you all for doing this. It's my second favorite podcast. Leaving us Such a mystery. in suspense. Such a mystery. What a cliffhanger oh, no. as to what his favorite podcast is. Uh, perhaps I'll troll Murphy's reviews and find <laughs> out. Uh, also, Rorick Brown is a new favorite. I only began listening to Fighting in the War I only began listening to Fighting in the War Room a month or two ago, but has now become one of my favorite podcasts in my regular rotation. There is a perfect balance between irreverent banter and educated criticism, and there is simply a more enjoyable camaraderie hey. with a group of hosts. Did I mention Katie Rich is a sex pot, manic pixie dream girl, <laughs> film lover that has been missing from my life? Keep up the good work. When did this I know. Happen? What? I do not know. Does she have a Tumblr feed or what, what's going on right now? Are people illustrating it just, her? It just took us. It took five years of gentle nothings being whispered into their ears, and they're finally catching on. We're obviously not so drowning her out. Boners enough. across the nation <laughs> when Katie speaks. Uh, yeah, maybe she finally fixed. Their I know. Audio levels. And finally, speaking of fixing their audio levels, on a much less erotic note, but still enthusiastic, <laughs> judging by their five star review, guy with regular hearing. Leaves a review titled, Can David Please Talk on Mike? And says, thanks. There you go. <laughs> no guy with regular hearing. Thank Straight you. Straight to the point. But it's still a five-star I'll review. i do my best. Still five stars. There you go.
Welcome to the show. For our first segment this evening, our tidbit, we are going to be talking, uh, we're going to be beginning with Black Mirror, which is the, uh, I believe, I, I'm hoping my co-host can educate The internet me, loves it. I believe it, it's, it, it, yeah, it's a BBC it. show, that's correct. I know it's British. Um, I'm uh, unsure. <laughs> it's if, not, it's not BBC. Not BBC, but it is British. It's Channel 4. Channel yeah. 4. And uh, it is, which is like their NBC. Uh, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> yes, they're is, peacock. Yeah, um, and uh, it is it recently has been put on Netflix. America has lost their minds for it. I eventually stopped getting it confused with Black Orphan, which I also had not seen at the time. But I watched the Orphan first Black. whatever. <laughs> I watched the first Black Black Orphan is Annie. Um, David does not I speak English, first. you know. Okay, so he it's it's interpreted. <laughs> I watched uh. the I watched five of the six uh, main episodes of. Black Mirror. Uh, there's a seventh if you count the Christmas episode, I believe. Um, and there are two things that I want to talk about with Black Mirror. Uh, the first is just the general quality, what it is, and so forth. And the second is the uh, what it what it brings back to our attention uh, that Sherlock has obviously made clear for a lot of American viewers that British television shows, the premium ones at least, operate under a different format. They run at different lengths with higher budgets, uh, and they feel like completely different beasts and often more cinematic because of that. And I'd like to talk about that as well. But uh, yeah, a lot of people are flipping out over Black Mirror, and I, I, it's unquestionably an impressive show. And that goes back to what I was just saying about the production values, about the uh, the lack of caution in the stories it's telling. Um and just the ambition and where it's willing to go. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like there's a certain smugness to its uh, its freedoms. It knows that it's pushing the envelope of what's allowed on television. The first episode, and this is a, the black mirror of the show's title, for those who's unfamiliar, although this is not explicitly mentioned in any of the episodes, refers to the screen of your device, your phone or tablet or phablet uh, when it is off. And what is the what is it reflecting about us? What is uh, what Man. is it? Man, yeah, um, uh, it's a really embarrassing title. Once what the creator the explained it somewhere, and I, I've had trouble taking this show seriously since then. But um, <laughs> get over uh, anyway, it. Anyway, the you get over it. Anyway, the uh, in the first episode is about the there's a hostage situation involving the princess and the prime minister of England is eventually more or less his, his hand and other parts are forced to uh, have sex with a pig on national television in order to uh, placate some hostage, uh, some terrorist demands. Um, and other episodes lean a little bit more towards the sci-fi. The second goes hard sci-fi um, and so forth. And they're all, it's very Twilight Zone-y. They, they run an hour or longer um, and they... Uh, begin with a, a kernel of an idea and really just sort of poke it around the logical areas that you would. Um, I have, I, 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 again, I'm impressed by a lot of these episodes. I have not at any time been excited by what I've been seeing. It feels like, uh, it feels like, uh, like a college exercise. I don't know. These are, these are ideas that they they just they feel like ideas. Conclusions I think that, that's important. Yeah, they feel like ideas and not and not great stories to me. And that is a is they a feel big like for me they for feel me. like the 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 best and okay of sci-fi short story writing. 
you know, um, these guys yeah, like yeah. Asimov and Heinlein wrote so many short stories just to get the ideas out there, just to like plant seeds, right? And some of them are good and some of them are amazing, but a lot of them are just good and some of them are okay. Uh, and, and it's just to see how an idea can trickle in and, and kind of expand out when you start dramatizing them. And I, I, I take to Black Mirror quite a bit because it feels more relevant than a lot of science fiction. I mean, it is science fiction, especially some of these episodes. Not so much the one where the Prime Minister fucks big, but um, some of these, like the third episode of the first season is about uh, if we have an implant in our, in our eyes that can tr- record everything that happens to us. Um, or in the th- second season, there's an episode where um, this kind of avatar cartoon character takes to the streets to become a political figure. Uh, these And they're very well thought out. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that episode about the grain, the, the thing in uh, their eyes that allows them to record their memories, the, the details, right. the... I'm more uh, impressed by how... The logistics of how they do they this. Don't, they don't miss a beat, right? right. They're, they're not, they're, there aren't too many loopholes. They don't really go to the extremes and they don't push these for thematic resonance necessarily, but they... Uh, they try they to root it in a certain... Oh, I was going to say, that sounds like a... Uh, oh, Joanna, go ahead. I was going to say the stakes are kind of low, though, in my opinion, for this. Um, or maybe they're high. I don't know. But it's the same with Sherlock, where there's maybe one great episode of Sherlock each season, and then there are two fine episodes or one bad episode. Um, I've never, there's not a single season of Sherlock that's three great episodes. And the same is true of Black Mirror for me. I think there are two great episodes, three good episodes right. and one episode with the aforementioned political avatar that I cannot stand. <laughs> the Waldo! But, like, it doesn't yeah, really Waldo. bother me. But and we should mention, we should <laughs> so mention that Black Mirror is an anthology show. There are, none of these episodes right, are exactly. related to one another. Exactly. And, you know, Sherlock has more of a thread, but it's also kind of an anthology show, and so you can... But Sherlock has recurring when, characters. Black Mirror does not. Right, right. Exactly. So, when, But when it comes to recommending Black Mirror to people, I say start with the second one, because that's what I think is the best. Then go to the third. Then go back to the first. You know, there's a whole complicated <laughs> pattern, but it's a low investment as opposed to even a 12 or 22 episode season. So, you know, you approach it differently. So I think it's okay to think of it like... Um, um, a prolific sci-fi writer who has a few great stories that we remember and then just so many that we forget. But I'm going to remember that grain story and I'm going to remember that credit, the second episode of the first season. I That's my favorite one. I but really what, I will, it, so. what I will say, uh, it's sort of echoing what Joanna was saying, is that um, I, I hate to go back to this word for probably the third time in this segment, but I'm very impressed by Black Mirror, even if I don't think it's particularly strong. Um and it watching Agent Carter on Hulu, I watched the pilot and about half of the second episode, uh, reminded me of something that I think often we may have talked about on the show before, which is how low the ceiling is on network yeah. television in America. I don't – when I watch Black Mirror – uh, there's something in the quality of the imagery and then the, the conviction of the filmmaking and the fact that I can even call it filmmaking with a straight face, um, that I believe anything is possible. I believe that they can show a story that is going to surprise me, even if they not, didn't necessarily do that. I believe that it's within their means and I'm able to give myself over to it in that respect. Watching uh, a show on ABC or Fox, whatever. It's ABC, Agent Carter, yeah? I don't, yes, yes. I don't yeah, know. Or fine. Um, right, because Disney, yep. yeah. Um, I, you know, the, the fact that it, it 
what I liked about it uh, actually plays into this, which is uh, what, what intrigued me about it was its serialized, uh, sort of the heyday of serialized storytelling, that milieu that it taps into, that sort of post-war uh, look and feel about it. But the it's so... There's, I, and this is a Marvel thing, you know, with stakes and not really being able to buy into the importance of anything that's happening because uh, that's really part of serialized storytelling to begin with. But watching anything in that network TV gloss uh, and, and that four, you know, four quadrant uh, need to satisfy everybody who's watching, nothing interesting can ever, ever happen on this show. And I, I, I totally don't disagree with that because how anyone uh, can invest in Agent Carter, at least, I mean, feels like a step up from the rest of the television around it. It actually feels a lot like the Marvel. Marvel movies that it's mimicking because the Marvel movies themselves look like television. Uh, so it, there's a cinematic step up from everything surrounding it, especially compared to like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I mean, I, I am so done with the homogeny of, of network television. Everything looks exactly the same. Um, but, but, but Black Mirror, I mean, I don't totally agree because Black Mirror just looks like a lot of BBC television that I've watched. It's very naturalistic. It just looks like shot on video. It, it, Black Mirror, to me, looks like the best of short films that I end up seeing that cross my path on the internet sure. Sure. Or, or Sundance coming up or something. Um, but, and and that's, that's, a, that's a positive uh, because they can be naturalistic. They can take the technology that we have today and make it look very plain. And then all of a sudden, Toby Kebbell's eyes are glowing because he's but watching it, videos it, in his mind or something. You know, it, I it, like that. It doesn't that. feel like storytelling by committee, though. Like, and that's... I, well, they're I individual, but they end up... Like, the question uh-huh. is, why aren't all of them great, you know? Because if you only have three episodes in a season, why why do they feel like toes dipping into the pool here? Because they're not well, that talented. Well, that's the wrong question. Well, no, but I need, I need to talk to your larger premise which seems to be that like British television is better than American television or at least Speak network American television but it but we're getting it's like what it's like saying foreign film is better than American well, film David we're getting would say the that. very best of the British <laughs> exports right so uh, I mean I would argue that British television is Whoa. better because they've been paying taxes for its development since its inception whereas There's ours is a commercial endeavor from the very beginning well, like maybe philosophically, it's better, but there's plenty of like reality show crap and and soap opera bullshit on British television that we just don't get because I mean, true, we, but that's also stuff that they developed earlier. Like our our real world is just their Big Brother like switched around, right? But vice versa, they also import our reality television into their programming as well. So. I mean, I, I'm just saying that it's in terms of if you're going to get a whole bunch of things that are television by committee if these are broadcasting free channels whose primary goal is to serve advertising versus people having to make content for something they're paying taxes for, they're going to expect a little bit of that content, at least earlier in television history. Now the internet's kind of thrown everything out, but they have this whole background that like, you know, and like even what we're talking about where they feel like they're good sci-fi short stories, a lot of good sci-fi stories only hold together because they're short. And that's a lot of why British television like comedies will be allowed to have one writer and not write in the room. And therefore the writer kind of gets to call when it's over or then something that's anthology like, you know, Sherlock or Black Mirror doesn't have to, you know, make something greater and thematic. Yeah, like but it's Sherlock. interesting it's that, season. you know, with Sherlock, at least you have one writer going through an arc. Like, each season might be an arc, even if they feel like into individual mysteries. You still have the Sherlock character. You still have the Holmes character. Charlie Brooker, who created Black Mirror, is writing 
most of these stories himself. I think the third entry of the first series is not uh, a Charlie Brooker script, but most of them are. And yet they feel kind of like, I don't know, half-assed ideas. And I, and I like a lot of them, uh, but by having one writer doing an episodic, serialized, uh, totally uh, disconnected series, is there anything gained by that? I mean... It's amazing that I mean, it's amazing I, I that British television can complete this because it's kind of R-rated and it's be- and and it's high thinking and it's interesting, but uh, it doesn't really gain anything from it. Well, I mean, a TV in general, I, I feel because it's so intermingled. American TV, like I think David was saying, sets the bar really low. Uh, the British system is experiment or is like several years further into stuff that America is just figuring out. Like American Horror Story mm. being an anthology and being the success that it is, is basically us just adapting the British system. Us being so happy at stuff that, you know, only lasts six episodes and is uh, content to tell a complete story and that is what they've been doing all along. Like, they look at us and think it's crazy that we have 23 episodes. And for most things, it's crazy to want to have 23 episodes <laughs> in a season. So, and I, I, I agree with that. Like, shorter seasons, limited run series, mm. uh, always better. But it's not always, always better because yeah. Bro- right. Black Mirror feels kind of middling, right? I mean, it's not that successful. It's intriguing, but it doesn't seem dramatically fulfilling. Maybe I'm, I'm not... But it's better than if Charlie Brooker were working for network U.S. television and had to produce. Well, I don't know. Twenty-two episodes of Sleepy Hollow every. But season. this is where the constraints rather... feel feel creatively blunt. Like they're helping put they're pushing people right. A lot of the shows that we well, like end up being on network television these days because they're being pressured. Well, I mean, would you rather tune into a new season of Black Mirror, or would you rather somebody try to respin the killing again for oh, another God. season? Well, now you put me, you're holding a gun to my head. segment tonight i'm just giving a quick shout out to a movie that premiered at sundance last year uh that is now opening in theaters and i believe on vod as that you well. like uh, it should be noted that, like that it very, played very at much. sundance and you liked it exactly. i want to set that precedent there are angry angry patches is back <laughs> there there are a few of those movies they are just uh We'll leave it at that. But this is definitely one of them. And uh, it's called Appropriate Behavior. It's written, directed, and stars uh, a woman named Desiree Akavan. And it would be uh, horribly reductive to say this is sort of a Persian bisexual version of girls. But at the same time, I feel like that will help you get a a sense of what it is and might actually convince you to spend the money to watch it. So I'm willing to take that for the, you know, I'm willing to make that sacrifice. Uh, Appropriate behavior is uh, Desiree Akavan has a, a really wonderful web series called The Slope. And she has transitioned into this film that uh, Annie Hall is probably an even closer. Uh, cl- uh, closer comparison than Girls, although Desiree Akavan will be featured uh, on the new season of Girls as one of the classmates in Lena Dunham's Iowa 
university workshop. Um, and it's essentially about this chrono- chronologically fractured story of a girl who had recently broken up with her girlfriend because her girlfriend uh, resented the fact that she uh, wasn't able to come out to her parents, who are sort of conservative, uh, traditional Persian parents, uh, though not necessarily first generation. They're still very tied to that culture. Um, Not first generation Americans, I should say. Uh, And she is trying to look back on this relationship, figure out what went wrong and how to reconcile herself to a world where she doesn't necessarily see herself reflected in it, where she doesn't have a cliche to be attracted to um, and feels that void in in her life and feels aimless as a result of it. It's really, really, really funny. Um, And more than that, uh, more more than it's... uh, comedic charms as much as they are it's uh, it's a very honest and, and sensitive portrait i think it really accurately conveys uh, that state of mind and the process w- by which someone might work through it and i think it really earns the resolution that it reaches which is very rare these days especially for a movie like this and especially when a movie like this runs uh, you know less than 90 minutes much less as uh, a lot of these movies do um I don't think anybody else on this podcast has seen this movie, uh, but I thought it was really one of the undiscovered gems, one of the buried, some of the buried treasure at Sundance last year, and I'm really glad that Gravitas Ventures picked it up. Uh, and I think Desiree Akvian is going to be a huge star. I mean, not maybe Channing Tatum huge, but uh, I think she <laughs> is, is three really... G.I. Joe starring Desiree <laughs> Akvian. She is... Is anyone Channing right. She's really, really smart and really likable, and uh, um, I have not seen her episodes on Girls, and I... So I can't speak to uh, the size of her role necessarily and how good she is in it, but I'm assuming uh, that they highlight her considerable talents as this movie does very strongly she's a triple threat um and uh you should get in on the ground floor and watch appropriate behavior yeah where can we see it i think it's gonna be on vod and stuff yeah, I didn't <laughs> So segment three is called simply the world is shit. (laughs) David's lying on a couch Um, right now and we're trying to console him because the whole world is raining down on him and he feels horrible. It's not that it's raining down on me. It feels like it's raining raining down on on all of us. I mean, I'm sure the fact that I am uh, I am working myself to the bone these days and not sleeping so much doesn't help. But I think it's also more the fact that before I could even get out of bed last week, uh, listening to my girlfriend's radio, uh, I had heard about the Charlie Hebdo attacks. I was literally lying in bed getting ready to start my day. And I was like, it was just, it it just felt, uh, it encapsulated a feeling I've had a lot recently of this sort of global depression of things that are the state of the world right now. And I think that uh, every generation, as long as you go back, has felt as if they were sort of living in the end times to one degree or another. Um, And one of those generations is going to be right. (laughs) And I I hope it is not ours, but it's uh, it's really... Uh, maybe it's just by virtue of getting this is not going to be about movies so much i get in a sense but uh maybe it's just as i'm getting older a little bit uh and uh, you know not necessarily face to face with my own mortality but more conscious of it than i was as a younger lad on a daily basis um i i I just 
you know, I don't have anything particularly pro- profound to say about this, but between what's happened in Nigeria, between the Charlie Hebdo attacks, between what happens all the time uh, with ISIS and everything, um, you know, and not even to go back to last year with... Uh, with the injustices that were perpetrated in America, which uh, are obviously grandly endemic of larger social problems, but we're just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to purely the casualty rate, of, at least in the last year. Uh, it's it's really it's really just uh, <laughs> it's a tough time. And and what I, the the thing that sparked this conversation was just my feeling of helplessness that. You know, as watching the movie stars of the Golden Globes last night, who are all very well intentioned and, and very powerful within certain respects, and seeing someone like George Clooney, who's wired into any number of world leaders and now uh, has a exceedingly powerful wife, um, if uh, I just felt like, what can he really do? What can any of us really do? Uh, and and it's you know, oftentimes, and I was participating in Slate's. Uh, movie club last week and this was something we touched about briefly when I was thinking of just sort of the casual cowardice of being cultural commentators a lot of alliteration there but uh, there's there's this idea that we we mean well we want to bring attention to what's happening in the world we want to you know filter it through the arts of our time and and help sort of spread certain messages but where there's just a, I felt like we weren't really putting ourselves in the line of fire, and B, it was like even if we were, what could we do? If even if we all closed our laptops right now and rededicated ourselves to a world, to a, to a life of of uh, making the world a better place, where would we begin? In at least as far as these things that are weighing down on my conscience in the here and now, that would make me think twice before bringing a kid into this world right now. You know, what 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 could we do? And I think that sense of helplessness. Uh, Maybe combined as things always should be, you know, with uh, the complete lack of interesting movies to go talk about right now, <laughs> which <laughs> magnifies every problem tenfold. Um, you know, it's just, uh, I, I don't know. I, I wanted to have a little therapy session here where we all laid back on our couches and despaired for a second and, and tried to. Uh, why, do, why do you feel so hopeless? Like, why do you feel like what you do does not matter? Why does talking about movies not matter in this climate? Is it because it feels like you removed like having the cultural discussion and filtering does not make a physical it's not that i think or does it or does it feel frivolous it no i mean it's not that i think movie writing about movies doesn't matter we're talking about movies to make to make it include our audience here because i think that people who see a lot of movies and obsess about movies and, and go to their day job and then come home and watch movies might feel the same way sure sure well it's not that i i want to be clear about this it's not that i think that writing about movies is is frivolous or irrelevant uh i take the more macro review that you know in a long enough timeline everything is sort of irrelevant um, and <laughs> i think this is, is irrelevant yeah oh, i think it's as relevant as anything else um but i i does i think about it more recently uh from my own life as a shield from the world there's something that i do i think you know movies are often described as entertainments that sort of uh fortify us from from the the daily grind or the horrors of the world whatever they might be uh and it's rare that i get that sense as somebody who actually contributes to that culture professionally as somebody who you know does this for a living realizing that um well all this shit was blowing up on the internet last week in paris when i was in the middle of, of like three different deadlines sitting at my desk writing out reviews and i was just like you know part of the reason why i do this is so that i 
you know, we engage in so many different topics as writing about movies means we can write about more or less anything, but there's always, it's always mediated through the medium of of the cinema. There's always a distance there. And I wonder if it's protective for some of us in a way, if that's, uh, if we, as much as the people who seek entertainment um, to divert themselves from these things, uh, do, if that's implicit in writing about it as well. I would argue with that because you're looking to the right now for movies. Well, I'm not making an argument. I'm just, I'm just, I'm putting out an idea. Because it's more fun that way. But, um, you know, you're you're talking about like, there's just nothing out there right now. And, you know, writing or talking about movies feels helpless or, or or you're not connecting with these events. You're not doing anything. I mean, isn't that why we have the history of, of film to guide us? Isn't that why we, uh, you as, as a film scholar, can look back to all these films and be knowledgeable about these dramatic stories that have been told? I think of our colleague Peter Labuza has written this book called Approaching the End, Imagining Apocalypse in American Film. He's He does his podcast, The Cinephiliacs. I will shout him out here and talk about, you know, the, we, we need to think about the end. We need to think about how... Uh, pop culture over the span of all of film history has thought about the apocalypse and the end and 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 magnify these different moments over history like it's important to see how people have reckoned with the idea that you're facing right now uh and and bring it to the forefront uh you're thinking about now 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 and the magic of of film is to see how other people have have um conversed about it in the past and and to dredge it up that's what you do why would you feel horrible about that and that's what people who watch a lot of movies can bring to the world and bring to the conversation i mean we are from afar we're not in the trenches perhaps but um we we are scholars in some way i want to i add to the conversation that especially when times are horrible we should not look things that are frivolous in the face because like I guess to bring that to a more personal example, I was, you know, watching some Netflix documentaries about depressing things uh, yesterday and I stopped and I decided instead to watch Crocodile Dundee and I found myself (laughs) tearing up at the end of the movie and not because that's an especially good scene. Well, no, it is a really good scene, but that's not the point. The point is that I'm not going to, you know, cry at reading the Huffington Post or, you know, seeing a tweet, I might be, like, emotionally uh, engaged to act, but in terms of my processing of my own grief and how I'm viewing the world, I need an artistic layer to push me in a direction and sort of tell me that it's okay to emote and to feel, I guess, because it feels feels dangerous to do that, to open yourself up to all, like, the real things every day. Like, if I wake up and get news in bed like you are. Like, why Why get out of bed? I you guess know? I think there that... There are hundreds of people that won't be getting out of bed. It seems selfish. But if there's a way you could put perspective through emoting, I feel like something frivolous, that's exactly what it's for. It's the chocolate serotonin to your brain. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, sort of something Dave said made me think of this imagery. I mean, clearly I didn't arrive at this with any sort of fully formed thoughts. We, we didn't begin this segment thinking... Uh, you know, I don't have any grand statement about how the world is today. I, I just think that I, I see it as little pores, uh, little perforations in in the little bubble around my life that we all build for each other or build for ourselves rather to to get by, uh, being poked and and things coming in and not being able to get them out. And I, I'm not saying this is sort of a any sort of uh, overly dramatic statement, like I'm going to go throw myself off a building. I just I get the sense that, and I wonder if this is. 
this is true of people around me, that there's just this sort of psychic anxiety that is uh, bearing down on us in a way that it hasn't in the past. And if it's because, you know, if it's the internet is doing that, if it's because the terrible things that are happening in the world, the same terrible things or variations on the same terrible things that have always happened in the world feel so much closer and more immediate to us. We feel to an extent like we all feel them, even if only for a moment, even if only in the back of our minds. I mean, we can't be that uh, Nigerian village that is bombed by a uh, a 10-year-old suicide bomber who doesn't know what she's doing because she was abducted and, you know, etc. We can't be present at that, um, but we can, for a moment, process it before we start tweeting about movies or again or whatever it is. Uh, but I think these things residually stay well, with us a little bit, and they're starting to accumulate. I think, what, I for think me you're lucky. I think you're lucky because you feel empathy from reading news, and a lot of people don't. A lot of people need an into these kind of feelings and these kind of news stories and movies provide that right like somebody watched hotel rwanda and realized like oh my god what's happening and they didn't know until they watched hotel rwanda uh that's the first movie that came to my mind but i I, i'm sure that like this this art is is a gateway and this mainstream art in a way is, is a gateway to these sort of things and I'm actually so glad you brought up Hotel Rwanda because, not because of Hotel Rwanda, but because it reminded me that a great movie is coming out I believe, next week. Uh, I like Hotel Rwanda. Timbuk- <laughs> Whatever. Damn it. Called you. Timbuktu. Uh, and Timbuktu is about the. Uh, it, it takes place, you know, in the eponymous place in a, in a small city somewhere and is. Uh, it's essentially this somewhat focused mosaic there is one this trio of main characters of family um but it, it really is this sort of mosaic of a village that is coming under occupied rule of militant islamists uh and uh, anyway i just wanted to make sure we can keep this peripherally involving the movies uh that 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 movie as far as empathy goes as far as having a sense of of the human side of these things. But yeah, I just, I just think that, uh, I don't know, maybe that's, go on, Joanna, sorry. Well, what I was going to say is we talked briefly before rejecting the idea of talking about this. We did think about talking about engaging in films that address these sort of situations. And I did want to bring up two things. First of all, um, the film Selma, which I think a lot of people are using as a form of therapy to deal with their feelings, about Ferguson and Staten Island and everything that's going on there. And there's something to be said for a veil or a a barrier of history versus something that happened last night, not at the Golden Globes, but uh, the CBS show, The Good Wife, just tried to address Ferguson like head on and it did not work in my opinion I don't think that was made after Ferguson though. That's what's interesting, right? It was. It was. Well, it was made after after the initial protests. It was made before the um, right, the grand right. jury decision. <laughs> do but, you but after give them the credit protest. for for trying, even if they didn't I succeed? I do. I do think it's interesting. I, I yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to shame them for trying. I'm just saying they tried. It was maybe one of the worst episodes wow. of that show I've seen. But I do. Do you I haven't seen it yet? No, I'm I'm, I'm a few episodes behind. Oh. I'm a, I'm a devout Good Wife viewer, as people who listen to the show know. Yeah, and I'm like, as am I. I, I can't believe I'm yeah. behind, and I've missed this. And in it, in that claim, I'm like, I'm scared. But I'm glad. I'm kind of glad yeah, no, that it has I, a worst I, episode. <laughs> yeah, but it was. They were trying, but it was just 
too much, you know, like basically a similar race riot breaks out in Chicago is what happens in a similar instance, you know, a videotaped, a black man is shot, et cetera, et cetera. Grand jury decision comes down and it was just a little too close. And, and so just this idea of engaging in art that is similar to, but not exactly the same as, or we can watch Hotel Rwanda because it's that many years after the fact, um, you know, I don't know, some idea about that kicking around i guess that's why i think that yeah. um like the advent of documentary film on netflix has been so helpful i mean i've really gone to bat for this movie Varunga that's been playing on netflix netflix that you can watch right now which is about the congolese national park and this oil company that's kind of backhandedly uh, paid for terrorism in that state to uh, wipe out the gorillas and come in and get all the oil i don't want to make too many statements allegedly it's all legend i've, I've been uh, the, the, the lawyers have come after me in the past for statements I've made. So it's all legend, I should say. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it, that's, that's the wonderful thing about documentary film on Netflix. That, like, we can now be thrust into these issues uh, with immediacy, right? That's always the problem with film, that you can't connect with what's happening in the world maybe as quickly as you want to because of how long it takes to make a film. But documentary doesn't really have that problem. We can get it up faster. I mean, there's so many good documentaries on the internet now. Uh, the, the, the National Film Board uh, has so many cool interactive films that are they're putting up on their website magic of html5 is really the advent of, of, of documentary film and um there's just so many things to engage with right now and we need it through film and we need it through criticism because we're not going to understand the world through this kind of bombardment of news i mean we want to we wish we could be that um high-minded but it's not going to happen yeah well and it's become more difficult Recently, I like that Patches in the, the length of this segment has brought up documentaries so you could plug into what's currently happening and fiction films because they'll point out what we history has learned in the past. That's a wide breadth that I definitely agree with because I remember like uh, like September 11th being in high school and taking like a week off in my English class to watch and discuss like Battle of Algiers with everybody just to talk about like what terrorism looks like more on the ground and less on CNN, you know, being in Colorado, not being in New York at the time. But it's like, I'm not quite sure that there's, I mean, there's definitely a whole bunch of protest documentaries like the square and whatnot, but in terms of how to deal with big content, uh, big concepts like terrorism, I would definitely point in the fiction direction Whereas, like, Patches, it sounds like all the documentaries you're recommending are, like, these very specific issues that people could get interested in and learn more about. Oh. I don't know. Takes different types. Yeah, no, I, uh, oh, God, now I'm, <laughs> I'm forgetting the, uh, the, the, the documentary. Oh, God, so many Sundance documentaries, you know, so many, so many on Netflix, too. I, God damn it, I can't remember <laughs> all the ones that I want to talk about. But, well, I'm, I'm, I'm more curious about what David thinks about all this and, and his existential problem here engaging with the world and wondering what like do you really feel that you're you're missing something that you need to go out and and engage with the world on a different level than the one you are are you spending too no, much time I, that's watching exactly movies? what i what i'm well, what i'm trying to say is that i i don't think that 
I just don't get the feeling that I would be able to accomplish anything. Uh, I'd have, I have no impulse whatsoever to stop what I'm doing and, uh, and go fight for the type of change I'm talking about. I mean, of course, I'm as interested in anybody else as hoping for a better world and, and doing my part. But that's the thing is that I have to feel like my, there is a part to play. And uh, with some of the things that have been ailing our world recently, I mean, like, what, what can I do to, uh, to stop, uh, you know, religious violence? Nothing. Uh, like, I just... Uh, but I disagree because of, of the writing you do, because of the conversations you have. I mean, I think you underestimate I, I the power of having these conversations in public. And this is, goes for everyone, whether you're a quote-unquote critic or not. Just, like, talking about these films and exposing people to issues. That's what these films are here for, right? I, I and I, you know... Uh, dialectically, I agree with what you're saying. Uh, it's just more of a feeling recently of just feeling like, how did we get here? <laughs> how, it's, it's probably, how are we so fucked? It's probably easier for you than it is for a lot of our listeners because you could just, you know, get on and write a little essay. Like, if our listeners want to turn somebody onto an idea, they probably have to, like, sit them down, invite them over, like somebody you hate watching a movie that you're trying to educate them with. Those are, those are the heroes, David. <laughs> Well, I think the other. Yeah, I think and the other uh, thing you know, is- I think some of this is uh, is you know, I'm trying not to make this about my circumstances. I mean, certainly um, there is a certain degree of privilege of being somebody who has been able to keep a distance from certain uh, problems related to you know e- economics and survival and things like that. That is uh, more vulnerable because they are less experienced with um, these sort of larger psychic problems about the world at large. Uh, and I don't want to discount that. Um, and I, you know, I wouldn't want the larger global threats to distract from things that are happening in the here and now that are on Ultron. a slightly smaller scale, like Voltron. Ultron? Here's what I'm hoping can like, convince you that you're doing good <laughs> and that you you have a place in the world and that your work is not useless. So the movie that I was bumbling over earlier is this documentary E-Team, which played at Sundance. And it's about humans, human rights workers like being in the trenches and in Middle Eastern countries or, or or Far East countries, or where, wherever, all over the map, um, finding genocide, finding these atrocities, and, and exposing them on camera. And this documentary is these two people going around the map and finding them, right? So what we can do, is, you know, not everyone is built to go and do that. That is a harrowing job. It is very intense. Like, these people cannot have families. Like, they try and fail, but they are okay with that. Like, if, if they realize they can't have a family, it's fine because they can still be human rights workers, right? They're just built for this job. But some people are really built for that job. Their minds are, are need to be in the trenches and they need to expose these problems. They're just built for it. If you are not, that is fine. But if you see this movie and can tell people whose minds are oriented that way, then you are a success. You are part of the machine here. You are helping the world by actually being a film critic or ha- being or having conversations about film. You are not failing the world here. I agree with that completely. The, the power of direction is going to be the Inspire the people who are yeah. crazy enough to save the world. It's not going to be you, but that doesn't matter. The sacrifice you, you make is that you don't want to do it, but you keep watching Like Agent Carter anyway. on ABC. A- <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I was thinking more of Black Mirror. Like, the, the, 
it can almost be insidious, but there is almost a more more influence that you can wield guiding culture than standing on your soapbox yelling into a megaphone at people who don't want to listen to what you have to say. But if you can influence uh, and guide and educate via television and film, that's a much softer ball to lob at people in order to help them um, to help shape the conversation, I think. Although yeah. no one will watch a Serbian film, no matter how much you make, you know, <laughs> well, intelligent arguments. You know what? So you shouldn't start your movie with a man fucking a baby if you want people to watch it. That's all. That's I'm like, that's I learned like a lot from that that's movie. That's a pro tip. I'm, I'm not going to do uh, it. David Ehrlich, too. Well, <laughs> I, I apologize for the incoherence of the uh, pitch that I sent to my co-hosts. Uh, I think that they handled it a lot more articulately than I. I think uh, I probably will feel a little bit better about things if I get some sleep. But, uh, yeah, let's go out there and, and make the world not shittier if we can. I'm standing up and I'm doing the Joseph Gordon-Levitt Angels in the Outfield just for you, David, Thank right you. now. The Wings. Are Thank you really? You. Yes. And, hey, at the very least, uh, and we should include this in the segment, there are, beyond Timbuktu, which I think is very, very valuable viewing, uh, there are good movies coming out later this month, so you can continue to distract yourselves with those, as uh, I would recommend you do, like The Duke of Burgundy and uh, Appropriate Behavior, which will be out by the time you hear this. And great television coming up as well. Unlikely. Maybe in April. <laughs> no. The Americans is coming back. Justified nope. is coming back. Better Call Saul. Better Wait, did, you say, did you say just television? There is television. There is television coming. <laughs> Great. Great. This week's fighting in the war room. Let's figure out where we can see people online in case we're back on Friday. Yes, I am Matt Patches and I write all over the internet and I try and put everything on mattpatches.com and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And if you want to comment on this episode, if you want to voice your opinion or you want to ask a question or something, go to our website, fightinginthewarroom.com. We post all the episodes there and uh, we have a comment section. I'm David Ehrlich. I am the associate film editor for Time Out New York and the editor-at-large of Little White Lies. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner and also at Time Out US Film. Please follow us there, especially if you live in New York, because pretty much all that account does so far is tweet about what's screening in New York. So Most important uh, thing that. in the world. It is <laughs> the most important thing in the world these days. Uh, and you can find all of us together on Facebook. And even Joanna will drop by sometimes just to say hi. <laughs> just say hi. Just to say hi. We quick, unceremoniously quick recruited At Joanna the for, this, uh, for this episode. <laughs> so thank you, Joanna. Thank you, yeah, Joanna. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to disappoint, um, you know, Katie's sex-crazed fans, because I'm sure they're missing her <laughs> sultry voice. But <laughs> I, I'm Joanna Robinson. Uh, you can find me most days on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. And if you want to listen to Dave Gonzalez and myself talk more about Agent Carter or the upcoming... Um, I want to talk, ab- I wanna talk about or Agent any Carter. Sort Recruit of, me. <laughs> all sorts of uh, comic book nonsense that would make David Ehrlich so sad. So uh, you sad. You can find it over findingthewarroom.com slash comics. Uh, the podcast is called The Thought Bubble. You can also find him at Batman v Superman Enter the Night. <laughs> scam. What a scam. This is the best thing you've ever done. 
Uh, my name is Dave Gonzalez. It's my first part, DA7E. That is also my Twitter handle. You could follow me there. You could also follow the show at FITWR. That's FITWR. And answer this week's lightning round question, which was in honor of Black Hat. What was the last time you saw a movie by a director you disliked and were yet pleasantly surprised by it? Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you guys on Friday.